0: Exodus chapter 21, if you'll join me there, we continue our way through the book of Exodus together. At this point, the children of Israel are at the base of Mount Sinai, and you remember that God is now beginning to give to them the law. We saw specifically last week in chapter 20, what most of us probably are more familiar with, where God gave to the people directly, speaking to them, it literally says God speaking to them from heaven, uh, gave to them what we often call the Ten Commandments, this divine moral code uh, that God gave to the people, the first four commandments seeming to be directly in regards to the people's relationship with God, that they uh, were to have no other gods before Him, that they were not to make any carved image. And bow down to it to pay homage. The idea is to serve or to bow down to any other idol other than give their worship to God. That they weren't to take the Lord's name in vain. Uh, That they weren't to in a sense in a casual way uh, disregard the reverence and the awesomeness of who God was. Whether in their words or their behavior and their conduct as they sought to represent the Lord. Uh, that they were to remember the sabbath day uh, to keep it holy that they were to set apart that time to give their full devotion and attention to god and that they were to in a sense cease from their work and their activities and their labor so they could give their full attention to god and then as the lord began to turn and address some of the uh, second half of the table of the law that we would talk about he then began to address relationships on the horizontal level and how our relationship with God should also have a direct effect upon our relationship with one another and that we would respect and reverence uh, things like human life and the institution of marriage uh, and the fact that God uh, calls us to be respectful in the way that we relate to one another in love and reverence. He he said to honor your father and mother. Uh, he, He said to us there in verses 13 to 17, you shall not murder or commit adultery, you shall not steal or bear false witnesses, against your neighbor and then of course the last commandment covetousness that you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or their possessions or anything that belongs to them that inward sort of envious desire within us whereby we would want something that another person has that God has not allowed us to have for whatever purpose or reason again remember the Bible says the Lord uh, will will withhold no good thing from us Uh, so again if there's something that Uh, in a sense it looks like god has withheld from us we could deduce from a scriptural standpoint that the reason why is because god says uh, according to my wisdom and love for you it would not be good for you uh, if that were to be in your life so sometimes god will refrain from us experiencing something or having something in our life. Maybe someone else has it, whether it's a marriage or it's a possession or it's a position or whatever it may be. And and it's not that God is somehow being impartial. It's just God in his love knows what we're able to handle and when we're able to handle it and in a sense allows our lot to be what is best for us to maintain for his purposes and his will being at work in our life. In the most perfect way, and to keep us close in relationship with Him. So we have these sort of, again, kind of Ten Commandments that God gives, and they're almost sort of the foundation to the building. Uh, And God here, really all the way through from this point in chapter 20 into around chapter 23 now, is now going to begin to sort of give more miscellaneous laws. In a sense, it's almost as if the foundation is the Ten Commandments, and now in the chapters ahead, God is going to say, and let me explain now how those. Those things are going to kind of work themselves out in practical everyday life in regards to how you exist in society and and how they are to, in a sense, regulate the way that you conduct yourself as civilians as you lived uh, among one another, among the congregation of Israel. And, And really now as we move into chapter 21 where we pick up tonight... We get all these different miscellaneous laws that kind of regulate the society, civil laws in regards to slavery and relationships. And, and what God does basically is he kind of almost just amplifies the Ten Commandments and says in specific, this is how some of these things will apply. You know, what, what does that mean and how will that apply that you shouldn't murder or you shouldn't steal or you shouldn't bear false witness and, and God's going to kind of address some of those things as we go through chapter 21 and and 22. So we'll we'll see, Lord willing, again, some of these things are a little tedious and it's hard uh, maybe making personal application in our lives. We have to remember the culture in that day in ancient Israel. It's very different than the culture that you and I live in. So some of these things, we look at them and and it's hard sometimes to maybe wrap our minds around them logically. I think we have to remember as we come to portions of scripture like this, um, the, the culture in that day. Uh, had a certain uh, flavor to it it existed and operated in things in their day that were norms for them uh, may be a little different than what are norms for us i would say this i would encourage you as you go through the law to take notice that a lot of our uh, uh, judicial system our jurisprudence system has been gleaned and taken from our founding fathers from a lot of the principles, however, that are found in the Old Testament law that God gave to the nation of Israel, our founding fathers had a biblical basis for a lot of the laws and things that they established and created from the framework of our you know constitution and so on and so forth with the government and a lot of that was taken from this and, and potentially as you look through it you'll see where some of the principles were gleaned out of that and applied into our own uh, governmental system here in the United States of America and in some ways it's part of what I believe made us a great nation that we understood hey this is some of what the heart of God was uh, God who knew how things operate best among a group of people uh, so they would be wise things to then import in a sense laws into our culture as well so As we look at these things, certainly some of them, as I said, they're going to be a little challenging and, and it's tough maybe to make application or wrap our minds around them. But again, nonetheless, these were things that take note at times are foreshadowings of the life and person of christ and these are laws to understand because then as you begin to move your way further into the old testament and the new testament you then begin to understand why the people related in certain ways that they did as you have this as a frame of reference as well as as you look at these chapters take note they really reveal to us what the heart of god is because they kind of show us what god cares about They show us what mattered to God and and what God valued and what things God esteemed like the sanctity of life and the value of marriage and protecting the rights of the vulnerable, protecting the rights of widows and orphans and, and making sure that women weren't abused or taken advantage of, especially in a culture in that day and age where women many times were treated as nothing other than just chattel and property. Uh, and, and it was like that in that ancient culture, unfortunately. The, you know, the greatest liberation that has ever come to pass for women is Jesus Christ coming and elevating a woman to the proper place of respect and equality uh, that God intends for her to have in a culture. But again, understanding as we look at these things, a lot of what we see here really shows to us things about the heart of God because many times God was just trying to regulate the sinful propensities in the hearts of men in regards to ways they already operated and, and, and conducted themselves in. And God was giving them restrictions and saying, listen, but I'm putting these restrictions on the society in such a way whereby man did not go to extremes in their mistreatment of one another and their lack of reverence before God and towards one another. So chapter 21, verse 1 begins by saying, now these are the judgments, plural, notice, which you shall set before them. So these are going to be judgments or ordinances. Remember back in Exodus chapter 18, Moses' father-in-law told him, as he was, remember, sitting there day and night listening to all the people's problems. Remember that a few chapters ago? And from sun up till sun down, he would exhaust himself with a congregation That was a massive amount of people, and he was listening to all the different disputes and problems, you know, just everyday activities where people were not only annoying each other, but, you know, your kids did this, they knocked my tent over, this and that, and all these just you know, typical issues that exist when people coexist in a society together. And Moses was arbitrating all that and giving judgments. And his father-in-law said to him, look, Moses, this is not going to work. You're being pulled away from the primary call of God upon your life. You need to find another group of men who you can delegate some of that responsibility to. Let them sit and serve as judges among the people in smaller capacities, and let them handle all the small everyday matters and the disputes among people in society, all the civil issues. And then when there's a big matter, something more heavy that they can't work through, let them just bring those matters to you. So that being said, what's being given now is okay. These individuals who were ordained by God and designated to sit and to arbitrate over everyday civil issues with people, uh, they needed, in a sense, a, 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 a law book. How how were they to make their decisions? Just use their own judgment? Well, here's what I think. Uh, I don't like your type, but I like his type, so you win. You know what I mean? How were they to do that? No, they were to have the word of God as a basis. So God says, this is my word. These are the ways I want you to operate in. And they were just simply then to implement in a sense, the laws that God gave to them. And I'll tell you, that, that is the safest way to make any judgment, not to use your human reasoning or to use your own logic or the way the culture does things, but instead to have the word of God as a basis and to just, in a sense, implement and, and to put forth what has already been established by God's judgments and principles. So that's what God's doing now. He says, give them these judgments, set these judgments before the people And those who would serve as judges among the people to handle disputes and so forth and to have civil laws among them. Verse two, he first addresses the relationship. Interesting. The first thing he addresses is the relationship between masters and servants or masters and slaves. And it is just a simple fact that slavery existed in that culture uh, and it didn't just exist among the nation of Israel it existed among Babylon it existed among Assyria it existed in many of the ancient cultures uh, among the Roman Empire we see in the New Testament there was the existence of slavery and masters and servants and households uh, and, and it was not something necessarily that God condoned or God endorsed but the Bible speaks of it and records the fact that it existed. Uh, and God, therefore, gave instruction how to operate among something that existed already in the society. It wasn't God who endorsed and implemented and said, hey, I want you to start slavery. It was something that was already in existence. So God gave instruction how to operate among that. So, of course, even in the New Testament, we see Paul by the Holy Spirit's inspiration, telling slaves and masters who existed in the culture, it was predominant among the Roman empire, this is how as a Christian, you should relate in that position. As a Christian slave, be submissive to your master and don't be resistant and resentful but show a submissive Christ-like meekness. And he told masters, listen, don't be like the other worldly masters who abused and mistreated their slaves. No, he he encouraged to show a level of love and respect and, and to have, in a sense, a different role in the way that they functioned in the leadership of their uh, household or their uh, place where they operated among, so again, this was just something that was in existence, and to this day, uh, sadly, uh, not that I think it's the heart or the will of God, there are still places throughout the known world uh, where there is still servants and masters and 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 slavery that takes place uh, so God here is just giving some instructions in regards to that verse two he says, If you buy a Hebrew servant. Here, notice this was the, the the standard. He shall serve six years, and in the seventh year, he shall go out free and pay nothing. So, again, in that culture, many a times... If you incurred a debt, let's say that you found yourself in a place where you had a financial obligation to someone else, you were unable to satisfy your debt for whatever reason, and you found yourself indebted to someone else financially, one of the ways in which you could pay off your debt to someone else is you basically could sell yourself to them, become an indentured servant, where you would work off your debt by serving them as one of their slaves or servants among their household. And it was a way to pay off your debts, to satisfy your debts if you did not have the finances to be able to do that. As well as if you were just someone, let's say, ...who was in very impoverished circumstances, let's say you were very poor and you were struggling to get by and and it was a a challenge every day just to keep a roof over your head or food on your table, those who were poor in the culture as an effort to try and at least provide for them a stable environment at times would go to a master to a household and offer to become a slave or a servant in that household at least knowing hey i will have something productive to do i will have a roof over my head i will have you know three square meals a day and and in a sense i will submit myself and work for you as a servant in exchange for the fact that they knew at least it would be a stable environment for themselves and sometimes even for their wives and children to be able to make sure that they were well cared for but god's restriction was that if someone offered themselves as a servant to a fellow hebrew brother god says that duration shall only last for six years whether they're paying off a debt. Whether they've done it because they're in difficult straits and they just need somewhere to live and food in a sense provided for them, the restriction was that you would only be allowed to utilize them in that capacity for six years. But in the seventh year, the debt was canceled. They had the freedom to choose to depart at that time at the end of six years. In the seventh year, they could go free. Verse three, he then says in connection with that, if he comes in by himself, so if the slave or servant comes in, submits himself as a single person, a single man, then he shall go out by himself. He goes back out. But if he comes in married, in other words, if he comes as a married individual with his spouse, then at the end of that six-year term, his wife shall also go out with him. Verse four, if his master has given him a wife, which was common at times is they would enter into that role and position. Again, it was like their job working on a, you know, maybe a plantation or working out in the fields or among the household. And there were other female servants who were there single as well. But again, keep in mind, these slaves and servants, in essence, they were in essence property of the owner, of the master. So uh, the master had the right to give a female slave to a male slave and to allow them to be married in a sense under his authority within that environment so he says if you enter in single but then you're given a wife you end up marrying another one of the slaves and she has borne him sons or daughters the wife and the children shall be her masters and he shall go out by himself so uh, again the idea being that they In a sense, were obligated to remain if they were already with the master. Now, it doesn't say that the marriage had to be terminated, but if the husband had freedom, the 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 wife, in a sense, was still obligated to fulfill her, in a sense, employment duties if she started out as being a slave to the master that was already there. Look, verse five. God says, but if that servant plainly says, notice, verse five, I love my master, and I love my wife and my children. I will not go out free. In other words, I don't want my independence. I don't wanna go back out and be independent. I I have the best master that I could have ever possibly experienced. And I have a wife and children and I love all of them. I love what's come into my life as a result of this arrangement. Then his master shall bring him to the judges. It was an official transaction. And he shall also bring him to the door. To the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl. Notice, no piercing pagoda at the mall didn't exist. You didn't go to Claire's and get that thing numbed up, and they didn't have one of those nice hygienic gun things, which those things that terrified me watching my daughters get that done multiple times. Anyway, a gun near my head just doesn't sound like something enjoyable, but th- this this is how it was done in that day. You know, if you were serious, if you were getting your ear pierced in that day, you put your head up against a door frame or a wooden door, and they took an awl and boom, you know, a hammer, and right through there, put that earring in your ear. Notice verse six, and he shall serve him forever. So what's being described here is basically what we would call the, the arrangement of what would be called a bondservant. Ultimately, in the New Testament, Paul himself refers to himself as a bondservant of Christ. And what's being referred to here is at the end of those six years, that servant that slave who's in a sense become an indentured servant to a master he's had to give up his rights he has to basically be in full submission to that master he has no rights over his personal life the time comes when he is able to go free he now has the free will to walk away from the authority of that master over his life and the sense to live free and to live independent but it says here that he comes to the conclusion you know what uh, I love my master. This is the greatest arrangement I could have ever imagined. And and I am more blessed and I enjoy more being here under the authority of my master and serving my master than I ever could imagine being free and independent, doing my own thing and serving my own interests. And he could say, you know what? I don't want to be free. I want to commit to serving you forever. I want to willingly Submit to your authority, and let you be my master and serve you for the rest of my life and Then this arrangement couldn't they' They'd go to the judges. There was an official arrangement he would profess his desire to submit himself to that master forever and serve him forever, and they would put the gold hoop in the ear, and it was an indication. To everyone in the culture, so when you saw somebody with an earring in that day, it wasn't because they were just trying to be trendy or cool, you know, when you see an earring. When you saw an earring in somebody's ear in that day, it indicated this is someone that is a servant by choice. They have chosen to forsake their own rights. They have chosen to give up their independence and to submit themselves to a master whom they love for life. And it was a very beautiful thing. Now, as I said, remember, Ultimately, Paul the Apostle refers to himself this way in the New Testament. He calls himself a bondservant of Christ. And the whole idea here is, is I'm not a slave and a servant of Christ because I have to. I'm a slave and a servant of Christ because I want to. I choose to give up my rights. I forsake all my freedoms because I've got the greatest master I could ever possibly imagine. I love the way it says here in verse 5, I love my master. And, and you know what? Listen, gang, the key to life, truly, the key to life is not freedom. The key to satisfaction and fulfillment and enjoyment in a human life is not being independent and doing what you want and having the freedom to just do whatever you want with your life. The key to life really is finding the right master because I don't care who you are, everybody serves a master. And there are lots of cruel masters that we've given our devotion and our submission to. And before I came to Christ, I served a couple of different cruel masters. You know, and I'm sure you before you came to Christ, there were things that ruled over your life that you served, whether it was your passions or some, you know, substance or relationships or whether you know, whatever it was, whether it was money or, or or prestige or wanting people's approval or whatever it was. You know, we all serve something. There's a master passion that we submit ourselves to and that governs all of our lives by nature. By nature, in a sense, we all become enslaved to something. And the best way to experience life is to find the right master. And that master is Jesus. And to say, you know what? I choose to serve Jesus. I love my master. I have the greatest master possible. And to be able to submit our life and to serve him. And Paul ultimately takes this idea from the Old Testament and refers to himself in this way as a bondservant, of christ as he talks about his own life verse 7 it says and if a man sells his daughter to be a female slave and this refers to how a father again had legal right over his own children he could actually at times this was something that took place they would sometimes because of economic reasons actually sell their children to someone else in a sense to help create income uh, or, or at times they would sell their daughter in a sense the idea was to become not just a slave in the official sense but to actually become the wife of a master or maybe to become the wife Uh, by an arranged way to one of the master's sons. And this is kind of what this is referring to here. It says, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. And what this is going to describe is how that if that arrangement was made and a father gave his daughter and sold his daughter to a master, whether to become his wife or the son's wife, that she was not to be treated... In the same way that a male slave or a male servant typically was, that she was to be treated respectfully, and she was to be treated like one of the other daughters within the family, that she was to be protected. And here God is protecting, in a sense, the rights and the treatment of the female if she would be placed into that situation. It says, And if she does not please her master who has betrothed her, notice, betrothal was a term of official arrangement for marriage, like an engagement. If she doesn't please her master who's betrothed her to himself to become a wife, then he shall let her be redeemed, that is, returned back to her freedom. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreigner, to a foreign people, since he has dealt deceitfully with her. So he couldn't just take away her rights and sell her to some foreign nation and let her just go away with slave traders. Again, God was protecting from the sinful carnality of the human heart, from someone disregarding, again, the value and the rights of a female in that situation. And if he has betrothed her to his son, in other words, he's taken her to marry one of his sons, he shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters. The idea is, again, he must show her the same respect and give her the same kind and helpful treatment as any other daughter that would come into the family, not treat her like just a female slave or property. If he takes another wife, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marriage rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, then she shall go out free without paying any money. So again, the idea is that she would be released if she's not treated properly. God made a provision so that she could be freed and released to have her freedom again or go back to her own family. Verse 12, he then begins to speak about uh, other civil issues. Moving on, he says, and he who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. So notice, capital punishment. Uh, This was God's idea and this wasn't a brand new thing. This existed and came all the way back from the book of Genesis, remember, in the days of Noah, where God said, if man sheds blood, by man his blood shall be shed. And here God institutes that if someone would not respect the sanctity of life, the value of a human life created in the image of God. Here we have God in a sense now beginning to roll out what he meant when we saw back in chapter 20, verse 13, God said, you shall not murder. So God says, and if someone does murder, if they violate that and they take the life of someone else, God says that person was to be put to death. Now, would you agree? That would probably be a pretty strong deterrent against murder if somebody was guilty of murder and they knew if I take the life of this other human being it doesn't mean that I might you know serve a few years in prison and then just get right back out on the streets again if they knew and understood if I take the life of another human being I'm going to lose my life I assure you that would be a pretty strong deterrent in the culture would it not and so God here is saying listen if someone can sink to the depths where they do not value a human life and they would actually murder someone else and take their life, then then God says that person, it would be better for the culture and the society of that person as well to protect others within the culture, will lose their lives as well. And And you can study statistically, many a times those who have committed murder and at some point been released back into the culture have ultimately ended up murdering another person at some point later on down the road. Uh, and here, God understanding the propensity of the human heart that when a person sinks to that kind of depth that there needs to be a deterrent what is god doing he 's protecting the victims. you know God is about protecting victims, not about protecting the criminal in our in our culture're we 're flipping everything 's around everything is about the rights of the criminal everything 's about the rights of the person who violates the law rather than protecting and taking into consideration the rights of victims in our culture god looks at things the total opposite god's concerned about the innocent who suffer in situations verse 13 he says however if he did not lie in wait the idea is it wasn't premeditated the idea here is you know not not premeditated murder but he's going to speak of involuntary manslaughter sort of what we would call it however if he did not lie in wait but god delivered him into his hand then I will appoint a place where he may flee ultimately that would be the cities of refuge we'll see those later on in Numbers chapter 35 where God creates a place of refuge when somebody was accidentally put to death say for example again and there'll be examples cited let's say you're out with your friend and you're chopping down some wood and as you're chopping down some wood the good old-fashioned lumberjack way your axe head flies off and you know, hits Fred in the head all of a sudden, and boom, he goes over and he's on the ground, and it's just you and Fred out there chopping wood. And people, hey, what? You killed him. I knew that you, And it was completely accidental and innocent. It wasn't premeditated murder. It was an accidental death in the same way like you'd have an accidental death in a, in a car accident. God created a provision so that it could be, in a sense, taken through a judicial process where there would be ultimately a city of refuge, remember, where they could flee to. Six would be established. They could go. They could be safe before one of the avengers from the family. There was no police system in Israel in that day. Families took redemption, in a sense, and families were the avengers of their own household members when they were killed. Imagine that. You know, If somebody in your family was taken out, uh, you and Uncle Guido went and uh, took care of business, if you understand what I'm saying. That was how it happened. There was no police system. So before the avenger from that family came after you, there was a city you could flee to so that you could be safe and things could be, uh, in a sense, justly discussed through a judicial system to protect, in a sense, the innocent if there was an accidental death. Verse 14, but if a man acts, notice, with premeditation against his neighbor, premeditated murder, to kill him by treachery, God says, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Notice, even if that person goes and they're clinging to the altar of God, please have mercy on me, spare me. God says, if they are guilty of the treachery of premeditated murder, God says, I don't care if they're clinging to the horns of the altar. They're to be put to death. Capital punishment was to be executed for the benefit of the society. Verse 15, and he who strikes his, notice, father or mother shall surely be put to death. So imagine that. A capital crime. If you were actually to strike your parent, well, tell you, that would thin the ranks real quick in culture, wouldn't it? I mean, if if these things were actually still enacted, he who strikes his father and mother shall surely be put to death. It was a capital crime. Again, what did the Bible say? You shall honor your father and mother. Well, what does that look like, God's saying? What does it look like? Respecting the authority of the parental role in families. Again, children having reverence and respect for parental authority. Why? So that kids did not grow up to be out of control rebels when they got out into the world. So God says, listen, we're going to squelch that rebellious spirit right away to, to nip it in the bud and to eliminate it right away as a deterrent. And again, keep in mind, this would deter rebellion against parental authority if children growing up understood these things so God elevated that reverence and respect that was to exist to honor the parental authority within the household verse 16 he who kidnaps a man and sells him the idea is whether for profit or again maybe slave trading and so forth but notice kidnapping where if he is found in his hand shall surely be put to death so kidnapping in that culture Was a capital crime. And I can tell you this. It's my opinion. So you get to listen to it. I think that's a great idea. To me I think if anybody is going. Again thou shall not steal. Well you steal my kid. Uh, Rambo's coming out. Do you understand what I'm saying? You steal my kid. I I I don't have a whole lot of patience or tolerance for that. Especially if you're going to steal my child for some perverse or distorted reason to sell my child to do something inappropriate and again we have those that stay still in our own culture who are stealing children stealing young girls for sex trafficking and all kinds of distorted perverse things and god says you know what that is about the most vile form of theft and stealing that's absolutely possible on this planet to actually steal to kidnap someone to use them for some horrific purpose, so God said it was, it was a capital crime if you were caught doing such in that day. Again, powerful deterrent. He who curses father or mother shall surely be put to death. So again, God emphasized pretty seriously the importance of respecting parental authority. If men contend with each other, verse 18, and the idea here is you know a fight erupts and that happens you know two guys get upset and ultimately a physical contention arises they get into a scuffle or a fist fight and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist And he does not die, but he's confined to his bed. So he's laid up for a while uh, because of his injuries or or so forth, temporarily paralyzed, just unable to get up and function because of the injuries of being struck with a stone or a fist. If he rises again and walks about outside with his staff, then he who struck him shall be acquitted. The idea is that he would be uh, not put Under criminal charges for doing that, if he was able to get up and begin to function again, he's acquitted of criminal charges. However, notice he was still accountable for his personal actions. It says here in verse 19, however, the person who struck him shall only pay for the loss of his time and shall also provide for him to be thoroughly healed. So what was God saying? God said, uh, but if he has to miss work and he can't plow his fields and so on and so forth, God says, uh, you're still not off the hook. You may be acquitted of criminal charges, but God says any time that's lost, a uh, workman's compensation becomes your responsibility. God says you're going to have to pay his back wages, and God says as well, and you shall make payment for his medical bills. You're the one responsible for the medical bills, God says. So you'll take personal responsibility and they were required to pay for the compensation of lost time at work as well as to pay for the medical bills during the healing process. Again, just proper restitution. And you'll see a lot of that principle throughout this. Personal responsibility and restitution. And can I say something? If There's one thing our culture is way off the charts with. It's people understanding personal responsibility responsibility for their own actions and taking personal responsibility for their own actions and being required, whether by their parents teaching them or society and the civil government enforcing upon them. Listen, you need to take personal responsibility and make restitution for the wrongs that you've done. You need to make right. You need to make good in situations because there's a lesson in that. And there's, again, a deterrent in that as people realize, look, you can't just do something and and get completely off the hook. There are consequences. And I think restitution and making good and right is an important part because it teaches people. And let me just say this. It's what rehabilitates people who break the law because it's a part of the rehabilitation process as they learn how to go back and then have to make good and make restitution in situations is a helpful, really therapeutic thing, in my opinion. Verse 20, he says, and if a man beats his male or female servant with a rod, and again, they were able to discipline them, so that he dies under his hand, he shall surely be punished, notwithstanding if he remains alive for a day or two, then the benefit of the doubt was that you know, it wasn't an intentional desire to put him to death. He shall not be punished, for he is his property. So here what's God doing? He's restricting excessive discipline that masters would afflict upon their servants and their slaves. And it was common. Again, difficult to read or maybe for us to swallow mentally, but it was a common reality that slaves and servants at times were disciplined for wrongdoing or for you know know, lack of compliance with their master or being rebellious or resistant but what's god doing god is saying look the the excess of an outburst of wrath where you beat to death a slave and that was very common and would kill them and just you know bury them on your own property god was trying to protect against that he was trying to to guard against excessive uh, violence and in a sense you could say the abuse of authority and too often that is a problem where people abuse their authority. They take it to an extreme, and abuse actually begins to happen where someone has an excess of anger come forth in the midst of their authority. verse twenty two if men fight and hurt a woman with child, so again, you know two men are fighting, they accidentally somehow strike or bump a pregnant woman carrying child, and she gives birth prematurely. she goes into preterm labor. Yet no harm follows. That is, you know, she gives birth to the child prematurely, but the child's okay. Nothing happens with the child. Uh, It says, uh, he shall surely be punished accordingly as the husband, the woman's husband imposes on him. And he shall pay as the judges determine. So notice in this situation, if she goes into preterm labor, but the child's okay, the husband could weigh in and impose what he felt was fair as far as restitution for the wrong that was done and the pain and suffering. And the judges then would ultimately use the discretion, even listening to the husband's input, and make a determination of what uh, fine, in a sense, was imposed upon the guilty party. Verse 23, but if any harm follows, the idea is as if... When the pregnant woman is struck or hurt, she goes into preterm labor and the child dies. You know, harm does come. Maybe she, you know, miscarries and the child actually doesn't survive. If the child dies, verse 23 says, then you shall give life for life. Now, before I go on in these verses, please do not overlook how God views a pregnant woman and the child within her womb, God views that child in her womb as a life. And what does God do? God says that is murder, just like it's murder when two people are out in the field and somebody premeditates and takes somebody else's life. And it was a capital crime. And God views it as murder. God says life for life. God puts it on the same level. So again, I don't care what our political system says. I don't care what our president believes. I don't care what anybody else in the culture believes. I can tell you that God says that inside the womb of a woman, that that is a life. And to take that life, God says, is murder. It's murder from God's perspective. And and you know what? I understand that's a sensitive subject for some. I understand that that can be, in a sense, a painful subject. Maybe you were a participant in, In an abortion, before you came to Christ, and listen, the blood of Jesus forgives that, and there is healing in Christ and forgiveness in Christ, and I believe you have a reunion in heaven awaiting for you, and and the Lord wants you to experience that. But let's never diminish what our culture is trying to indoctrinate us incorrectly about the reality of how God views the life of a child in a womb. To take that child's life at any stage and in any form is murder from God's perspective. And God puts it on the exact same level as maybe two individuals who were already living. So God says there shall be life for life, verse 24. He says eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, and stripe for stripe. Now, what's God speaking of here? God is speaking of here punishment that fits the crime. That's where this comes from. You know, in our own governmental system, and punishment that fits the crime. Again, what's God saying? God, an eye for an eye. What He's saying is, is that a punishment should match the crime. It should not be greater than the crime calls for, and it should not be less than what the crime calls for. It should be eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Again, there should be an equality. The punishment should always match the crime it should not be more punishment than the crime deserves and it should not be less punishment than the crime deserves now as you look at this ultimately remember jesus talks about this in the new testament and the reason he has to bring it up is because what happened is the pharisees because they were law keepers and legalists ultimately took this in essence as saying is look it is absolutely a requirement then you have to take revenge and you must fulfill the law. And, and what God was doing here, what they missed was the heart of what behind God was doing. God was trying to restrict the severe tendency in human beings in regards to the area of revenge. See, God understands the human heart and God says, no, it shall only be an eye for an eye. Because you know what happens. If you poke me in the eye, I don't want to just poke you in the eye. I'm going to poke both of your eyes. Do you understand what I'm saying? If somebody you know, strikes you, you're not going to just strike them back. You want to strike them harder back. You know what I mean, ouch, you punched me in the arm. You know what I mean? And you're going to knock them out. You, and, and our natural tendency is to raise the ante in regards to retaliation. And God is saying, no, 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 no. That, that, that's not the way it's supposed to work. He knows our tendency in the area of revenge to want to get retribution and revenge on a much higher degree because of our anger and our, our desire within to have strong retaliation so god says no no no. the punishment has to meet the crime and god was restricting and he was regulating no 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 it, there must be equality justice must be maintained now the pharisees took this and ultimately were taking the heart of it completely out of it and saying it's a requirement hey if somebody pokes your eye out, even if you want to forgive him, I'm sorry, you've got to poke his eye out. <laughs> I mean, you've got to give him the puni- punishment that he deserves, and you need to fulfill the law. And Jesus came along and said, look, you have heard that it said an eye for an eye. But I say unto you, if somebody strikes you on one cheek, it's not required that you punish him back. Jesus is saying, look, all that was saying is don't give back more than the person deserves. But he said, I say to you, turn the other cheek. And the idea is it's not required to get retribution. At times, we can show the love of Christ by, in a sense, refraining from retaliation and refraining from punishment in return. And Jesus brought back the heart behind what God intended in this. And you can see him discuss that in Matthew 5 when he brings this portion of Scripture to a New Testament perspective, speaking of what was the real heart of God behind this. Verse 26, And if a man strikes the eye of his male and female servant and destroys it he shall let him go free for the sake of the eye and if he knocks out the tooth of his male or female servant i don't know why i find that funny but i'm sorry i have to find some humor in this bear with me thank you for walking through this with me (laughs) he shall let him go free for the sake of a tooth now i don't really know what all that is in regards to yeah it's amazing god says look if you strike your servant you knock his tooth out Uh, Bingo for him, he gets to go free. I wonder sometimes if, you know, somebody was, if I was a slave, I'd probably mouth off and, oh, there you go, thanks, see you later. You know, And just take out my tooth, give me my freedom. But for whatever reason here, you know, if anything, look, at here is the creator of the heavens and the earth. Almighty God. And here is God condescending, not only to be involved in everyday matters of life, but showing that he actually cares all the way down to, to a person's tooth. God says, if somebody loses their tooth, I'm not going to overlook any offense. I'm not going to overlook anything that's hurtful. I'm going to make sure that you are taken care of even when you've been mistreated and hurt and harmed. And, and God, that you know, of all power, He condescends in these personal ways to be involved in our lives, where even down to the concern of a person's tooth. He gives here a provision for the freedom of a servant in regards to something like that happening. It just shows the tremendous care and interest God has in every little personal detail of our lives. He's aware and He wants to be involved. Verse 28, He says, If an ox gores a man or a woman to death, that ox shall surely be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall be acquitted. The idea is, again, He's not held liable because. You know, he, he, in a sense didn't have control his animal just spontaneously uh, attacked someone and, and he was to be liberated the loss of his animal in a sense was the uh, punishment as he lost a valuable piece of his property because the animal had to be put to death for its uh, anger and its tendencies to be destructive verse 29 but notice but if the ox tended to thrust with its horns in times past in other words it, it manifested a propensity of an aggressive behavior and it was thrusting other people and people say hey man you better you better keep track of that Uh, you better tie up your ox there because it seems like it's kind of got an aggressive temperament it's probably going to hurt somebody or kill somebody and he's negligent and he doesn't take personal responsibility this is the other idea here if the ox was known to be aggressive and he's been made known of it As an owner, and he has not kept it confined so that it killed a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner also shall be put to death. So again, he was negligent, did not take personal responsibility, so he was held liable himself for the actual death because of his irresponsibility to take into consideration the welfare of those around him. And if there is imposed on him a sum of money, then he shall pay it to redeem his life, whatever is imposed on him. Whether it's gored a son or a daughter, according to this judgment, it shall be done to him. And verse 32, if the ox gores a male or female servant, so if your ox attacks someone else's servant, he shall give to the master 30 shekels of silver and the ox shall be stoned or put to death. So the payment to make restitution for a slave, a male or female servant, notice was 30 shekels of silver. Now you see that amount of money in the Bible three times, 30 shekels of silver. You see it here in this giving of these civil laws. You find it in Zechariah chapter 11, referred to there. And then the next time you see it is in Matthew chapter 26 and 27, where 30 shekels of silver was the amount of money that Judas Iscariot took as a payment to betray Jesus Christ when he made an arrangement with the religious leaders to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. So in a sense, it goes to show you where the heart of Judas was at. That basically Judas, you could say, put such a minimal value on Jesus, he sold Jesus out for the price of basically a dead and worthless slave that an ox had gored to death. And it just shows you the tremendous betrayal and the belittling of the value of who Jesus really... How, how, how little he sold Jesus out for. How sad. You know, but as we think of our own lives sometimes, is it not really a, a real tragedy to think sometimes how little we will sell out Jesus for? And, and really how sad and tragic it is how little value we put on the Lord that for something so minimal... Some momentary pleasure, or some some very valueless thing, the most valuable one, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, and will sell out the Lord for some little minuscule thing, like thirty pieces of silver uh, and and here we find this reference that ultimately becomes something in connection to Christ. Verse 33, and if a man opens a pit, so you dig out a pit or a well or something, uh, and, and that man digs out his pit and he doesn't cover it, again, what's that? Personal irresponsibility on his property. He doesn't cover his pit that he dug. And an ox or a donkey, someone else's animal, falls into it. The owner of that pit shall make it good. He shall give money to their owner, but the dead animal shall be his so he has to pay for the animal but you know he gets the dead animal to drag its carcass out of there and he at least gets to have the free meat out of it i guess if you consider it that way but he again he's negligent his responsibility for not taking care of what he was in possession of if one man's ox hurts another so that it dies they shall sell a live ox and divide the money from it and the dead ox they shall also divide Or if a man was known that the ox tended to thrust in time past and its owner has not kept it confined, he shall surely pay ox for ox and the dead animal shall be his own. And if a man steals an ox or a sheep, again, this is back to thou shall not steal. He he steals an animal and slaughters it or sells it. There shall, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep. For a sheep. so uh, that's a pretty hefty price. Keep in mind an ox in that culture was an extremely valuable possession. It was kind of like their John Deere tractor in that It'd be like today going to a farmer and stealing their tractor off their property. This was a valuable asset. it allowed them to do their work. So if you stole someone's ox, uh, again notice you didn't have to just payment. Y- you had to make a pretty hefty restitution fivefold or fourfold. Now, somebody having to work hard to pay back that kind of restitution, would you agree? Again, that would be a rather strong deterrent not to steal anymore, to become a responsible individual. If they had to work hard and, in a sense, pay back what they had done wrong, that would be a very therapeutic thing for a person. It would hopefully rehabilitate wrong character. Again, because we neglect this in our culture we create a lot of the cyclical patterns we do with criminal activity in our culture. Because you know, we're very quick to, okay, we'll just imprison somebody. But listen, what about rehabilitating people? What about helping people to learn how to get out of patterns of bad behavior so they can come back into a society and learn how to be a responsible, functioning individual who get out of the system and the cycle that people often unfortunately get themselves in? And many of these things God was creating to help in that very area. Look at verse 2 and 3, some other interesting things. It says, if a thief is found breaking in, and the idea here is at nighttime, if a thief is found breaking in at night, and he is struck so that he dies, there shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. So here God speaks of someone breaking into your home, so someone breaking into the home in the, in the middle of the night, it's dark. So because it's dark, you're you know, a- awakened from your sleep. You can't tell, is this just somebody you know climbing through my window to steal a possession or two? Or are they coming in here and they're going to murder my whole family? So basically what God does is God gives a provision that if it happens in the middle of the night, somebody violates your your personal property, they enter into your home and you can't tell what their intentions are, God gives a provision basically for justifiable homicide in self-defense. God says if it happens in the evening, you can't see and you, as a result of that, you feel threatened and for the protection of yourself or your family in self-defense, you put them to death. There was a provision for that justifiable homicide according to God's law to do it in self-defense. Now, if it was the daytime... And you could identify the person and you could run over and shoo them off or, hey, what are you doing there? And, and, and you could see everything that's going on. Again, God makes a provision so there's restraint there. Uh, again, if it was just somebody that was coming in because they were hungry and they wanted to steal an apple off your table or something like that, that you didn't, with excessive anger and rage, take the person's life unnecessarily if you could have just identified them as a thief and kind of you know, chased them off. And again, I, I think that's important because, see, there's balance in that. Because truth be told, in the same way, I would probably want to eliminate someone if they broke into my house in the middle of the night because of human anger. If somebody broke in the daytime, you would probably want to do the exact same thing even though you could see them just in reaction. So God's, God's bringing restraint here upon our human tendency to, again, respond and react in great anger. He says he should make full restitution if he has nothing then he shall be sold for his theft. And if the theft is certainly found alive in his hand, whether it's an ox or a donkey, again, notice, he shall restore. There's that repetition again, restore double. And if a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed and he lets loose his animal, the idea is he just lets his animals go graze over on Farmer Joe's land instead of just, again, being responsible. He shall make restitution from the best of his own field. And the best of his own vineyard. And if a fire breaks out, and oftentimes they would burn their fields to cleanse them, the ash was good for the land, and it would clean off typically, you know, rodents and so forth and pests from the land. But if that fire again wasn't contained, so that it catches the thorns, and then the stacked grain and standing grain, the fields consumed, he was kindled, the fire shall surely make restitution. And if a man delivers to his neighbor money or articles to keep and it's stolen out of the man's house and the thief is found, he shall pay double. And if the thief is not found, the master of the house shall be brought to the judges to see whether he was actually the one notice who stole his neighbor's property. And then the idea here again is is an issue of integrity. He says, you know, you go away, again, let's say you're going away on vacation, so you tell somebody, hey, come over and house sit, or, or, or you know, watch my stuff for me, why I'm gone, and then you come back and you find out, uh, hey, you know, where's my stuff, man, my, my big screen's missing, and my DVD player's missing, and uh, you know, my safe's emptied out, and hey, well, I don't know, somebody must have broken, and and stole it while you were gone, again, there was to be a process whereby what's happening here? You were innocent until proven guilty. Again, you see where this comes from again. If the thief is not found, it says, he shall be brought to the judges to see whether he himself was the thief. You know, whether he actually stole the property himself. But again, you see these same principles enacted the person was innocent until proven guilty again you just see the heart of god as you look through these things that that god is a god of equity a god of fairness a god of justice that that god wants to restrain the human temperament from its sinful propensities and in a sense god is regulating what's god doing by civil law he's regulating the sinful nature of humanity Again, when we get to Romans chapter 13 and other places in the New Testament, the Bible tells us that civil authority exists as an authority from God. That the governmental system, the police force and so forth, these things exist as instruments really of God on this planet, which is a fallen planet with sinful people to regulate our sinful tendencies so that there's not complete anarchy, so that there's not just an outbreak Of violent, evil, wicked things happening all the time. And I say that to remind you of this. The the highest responsibility of the civil government and police force and so on and so forth is to, in a sense, bring about just consequences and punishment for wrongdoing when it happens in our culture. And to overlook such things to you know to become and again you know playing to the the, the you know the the, uh, the, the one who 's the perpetrator and, and giving them loopholes and not thinking about the victims does nothing but just allow a pattern to exist in culture that lets mankind 's sinful propensity just run rampant and causes our world to just spin in a moral. Uh, uh, you know funnel downward and things to just fall apart so again uh, these things that God sets in place they're necessary because truth be told listen without restraint humanity is out of control praise God for the restraint not only of the civil system but praise God that he has given to us the word of God in a sense, that becomes the, the internal restraint for you and I spiritually. It's the Spirit of God and it's the law of the Spirit of life that sets you and I free from sin and death that's within us, and it becomes an internal restraint that tells us listen, you need to use restraint here, or you need to make things right here. There was an issue here. Listen, it's not you don't just say, I'm sorry. You need to make things right. And God's Word tells us to respond in that way that he'd be honored and others be well cared for.